Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, we tend to throw the word genius around pretty casually, saying so-and-so has a genius for a particular skill, or sarcastically pointing out someone's failure by saying, nice work, genius. But what makes an actual genius a genius? My guest today has spent over two decades exploring that question by studying the world's most iconic and original thinkers and creators, both past and present. His name is Craig Wright. He's a professor emeritus of music at Yale, who continues to teach a course there called Exploring the Nature of Genius. And he's also the author of the book, The Hidden Habits of Genius Beyond Talent, IQ and grit. Today on the show, Craig reveals the characteristics and patterns of behavior of true geniuses and begins by answering the questions of whether there's a connection between genius and intelligence and whether genius is hereditary. We talk about several drivers of genius, including situational advantages, a childlike ability to play with possibilities, a keen curiosity, a strong memory, broad interest and vision, the ability to toggle between intense concentration and loose relaxation, and keeping a daily routine. We then discuss whether there's a connection between genius and mental health issues and what effect being a genius tends to have on someone's personal life. Along the way, Craig illustrates his points with examples from the lives of Mozart, Da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash genius. All right, Craig Wright, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much, Brent, for inviting me. All right, so you wrote a book called The Hidden Habits of Genius, where you look at human history, geniuses in human history, to try to figure out what it was they did that made them a genius. But before we get into those qualities, I think it'd be helpful to note how you defined genius in your research. Because in the book, you, you note that you can define genius in all sorts of different ways. But in your book and in your research, you have a, a, an equation, basically, that defines genius. And here's the equation. Genius equals significance times the number of people impacted by an idea or creation times duration or lifespan of their insight. So basically a genius creates something of significance that impacts a lot of people for a long time. So I think an important thing to note there, it's not just about being good at something. Like you couldn't, you wouldn't call someone like Michael Phelps a genius, even though he's really good at swimming, but instead it's about changing the world in some way with your ideas. So with that equation in mind, Let's talk about the factors that do or do not impact its components, starting with intelligence. Now, in your study of geniuses throughout history, did you find a connection between genius and intelligence? Uh, that was the, the the single biggest misconception when I started this project. I had a stereotype in my head. A genius does this, and a genius looks like this. Maybe somebody that that was seemed like hugely smart would, would score 200 on an IQ test, which could just slap the forehead and say, aha, I've got it. And that's not really the way it is from reading, say, the lives and studying for 15 years, the backgrounds of, of probably 100 different geniuses. It's much slower. That so-called aha moment is actually the culmination of thinking over a long period of time. It's just the, the, the peak, the tip of the iceberg and a, a great deal of, of substratum underneath. So that's important that we don't want to overemphasize IQ. And from what I'm able to, they're very interesting tests. California guy at Stanford for decades did a test of, of some 500 
individuals with IQs of 132 or higher. And at the end of the test, not a single so-called genius, no Pulitzer Prize winners, no Nobel Prize winners, no Academy Award winners, nothing. As one of the people working on it said, we didn't have a single genius with all these high scores. But by the same token, there are a couple of people that were rejected from this because their IQ wasn't high enough that went on. uh, William Shockley and uh, Louis Alvarez went on to win Nobel Prizes in the sciences, but they've been rejected because they didn't meet the IQ threshold. My sense of this is you have to have a good general IQ. And I would say there, based on the standards of today, probably 110, 115, 120. But once you reach that generally above average, uh, sort of B plus, A minus IQ, then you're in the game. And it's all these other enablers of genius that are going to push you forward. Well, and okay, so that's interesting. So there's, you don't, you don't have to be, you don't have to be Mensa smart to, to no, be okay, good for you. You yeah. so you you know about that. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe you tell us, but what what the heck is Mensa? You don't have to be Mensa smart. You're absolutely right. Well, is that organization? If you have a, you have a certain IQ level, you could say, "Oh, well, I'm a member of Mensa." Yeah, it used to yeah. be. I remember like it was a big deal. I don't know if it's such a big deal anymore. People don't really talk about it. Yeah, I think people catch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is some something of a scam. Um, they're sort of catching on to this, that you can do very well in this world without being a member of Mensa. And maybe you you get so caught up in it all, oh, I'm so smart and I don't have to do this or do that. Or So I, I don't know, but there is, I think it's, it was founded in England in the 1940s. And so it's been around for about 80 years or so. And you have to have an, a, a verified IQ of one-third I think is it, but but I, or maybe it's 132. We'd have to check on that, Brad. Okay, so genius intelligence, you just got to be, you know, A minus, B plus smart. Another interesting thing you noted is genius isn't really heritable. Like you can't find genius pedigree. You found that geniuses typically don't have parents or grandparents who were geniuses, nor do they have progeny who are geniuses either. What's going on there, you think? I think it's a kind of one-off event. It's something akin to a perfect storm of, in, let's say, of a genetic crapshoot. You've got a kind of reshuffling of genes with each new fertilized embryo, I suspect. And thereafter, they can reassemble in some surprising ways. And it's, as I say, something of a perfect storm. It happens, but it's not heritable intelligence, a certain level of intelligence, a certain level of curiosity is heritable. These The enablers, the drivers of genius have to come all together. They have to come all together in at a particular point, in a particular time, in a particular way. And when that happens, you get this sort of outlier. Psychologists have this fancy word for it, emergenesis, something that just hops out completely unexpected from the genetic pool. And it doesn't happen, it doesn't hop out that way in generation after generation after generation. Very rarely do we have long streams or any kind of strings of genius. So it's a kind of one-off, one-off event. My favorite story here, and as you know from Brent from taking a peek at the book, is the, the story of the horse secretariat. Now, obviously, the horses are not people, but that's a horse that came out of nowhere in terms of its genetic pool. One had only sired 400 offspring. Only one of them ever won one triple crown race, despite the stud fees that were being paid. 
But that horse still and uh, still holds the track record. Secretary still holds the track records of the tri- three Triple Crown races. It was just uh, off the charts. As I say, it was a one-off event, the perfect storm. Right. So there's a there's a genetic crapshoot going on with genius. There's also a, a circumstantial crapshoot. Like you know, you talk about. I think everyone's heard the story about Bill Gates. Like he happened to go to a high school where there was a computer or something like that. And if Bill Gates had been somewhere else. Bill Gates probably wouldn't have been Bill Gates um, because of that environmental factor wasn't there. It's an interesting question, and it has to do with luck and genius. There's a fancy word for that called situational advantage, situational advantage. Now, I suspect, having read a bit about Bill Gates, I suspect Bill Gates probably would have, his exceptional abilities would have manifested eventually. It probably would have taken him more time to find his way to computers. So he had a situational advantage. His his interest, his passion was sort of jump-started by the fact, one, his parents were rather well off. Two, he had access to materials at the University of Washington there in Seattle. And three, he went to a good, a very good school in which they appreciated and gave him access to computers. He probably, again, would have wended his way in that direction, but it may have taken him longer. How do you get this situational advantage? Generally speaking, you have to move to places to put yourself in the kind of get in the game or get out of the game. In in some cases, you have to move to a, a big city. Let's say you're a tech investor, you may want to be in Silicon Valley. If you're interested in the arts and Broadway theater and stuff like that, you probably want to be in New York. If you're interested in energy production, maybe you want to be in Tulsa. So you have to get to these centers that where there's an agglomeration of money and where there's an agglomeration of talent and competition and information that you can run with and build off of. All right. So we've talked about intelligence and genius, the connection there, not big connection there. Uh, we talked about situational advantage. Let's talk about some of these habits that you've found when you actually looked at the lives of what, like what they, what these geniuses did. And one habit you found amongst all these geniuses you you've studied is that they maintain a childlike view of the world throughout their adult life. What does that childlike worldview look like from a from for a genius? It probably looks different for each child, and it may look different based on the emotional context in which that child is is being weird. Children have wonderful imaginations, and the the curse is, the problem is that that in terms of the process of growing up, adults basically, I won't say beat that out of them, but suck, suck all the, I don't know, suck all the imagination out of it. And I'm just as guilty of, uh, of this as a parent of four children as uh, the next. Although I think I've learned a lot and I think I'm a lot better at it with the seven grandchildren. You know, kids have this uh, fantastic Im- imagination. They don't know what is possible. You, There's this thing on a, on a tape. I've watched this happen. There's a thing on the table, and it could be this long thing with a, a point and some lead at the end. 
or it could be this long thing with a, that's very sharp and it has another kind of point at the end. And has the kid know that one is a pencil that they could create a wonderful drawing from and the other is a knife that they could kill the cat with or whatever. So only over time, depression, no, no, don't touch that. Don't touch that. So we gradually developed this whole idea of the don't touch that mentality. Don't go there. You can't think that way. So how do you fight against that? I can, I, let me indulge myself here and tell you about a couple of stories in, in my own life. Once on a family vacation, I think we had one son with his three children, then age eight, 10, and 12, out at the beach, making sandcastles. They were making up stories and they were playing there at a sandcastle and they had moats and characters. And there's the 12-year-old kind of voicing over this and making up this, oh, let's do this. I said, well, gee, should this kid, you know, is this appropriate uh, behavior for a 12-year-old? Shouldn't be out there chasing a ball or, do, you know, involved in some kind of competitive sports or something like that. And then, then fortunately, I caught myself and said, you know, uh, this kind of imaginary play is really good. This is how people, this is how people come up with ideas. Alfred Hitchcock was famous as a director for saying, you know, we're pressing too hard. We've got to relax. We've got to play. We've got to have fun. We've got to imagine. So go out there, be crazy, do any, do any like uh, make a fool of yourself. Just release your inner creativity. Don't set up these barriers. Recently, with one grandchild, I have found myself climbing up, and at my age, it's something of a, of a challenge, but climbing up into a tree fort. Tree forts are really cool. But you can go in there and you go up in there. And you can play and imagine things. You can imagine pirates. You can imagine rocket ships. You can think up characters. You can think up imaginary friends. There's no reason that we should necessarily have to stop doing this as we grow up. Maybe the worst thing that we can say to a child is, oh, grow up. Because maybe those creative fantasies or fantasies that they're having will lead to uh, better ideas because uh, the, the mind of the child is not, and ultimately the adult, is not so constricted. All right, so make time for play. And yeah. I think you highlighted there's several geniuses that still played even as adults. I think uh, Richard Feynman, he did magic, which you, know, you typically think of as like, well, magic, that's what you do when you're 12. You stop doing that when you're 18, when you're getting serious with life. But no, the guy, guy kept doing magic tricks. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. You know, to be honest with you, a good few, but I'd, I'd actually forgotten that, that Feynman did that. So uh, uh, Brent won Craig nothing on, on the magic <laughs> magic score. <laughs> good for you. Uh, keep, keep going. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, I mean, I think of other ones. I mean, like, okay, I don't, this is a debate. If, if he's a genius, not Theodore Roosevelt, you know, he continued to, to explore and have fun even as yeah. – as a, you know, as an adult, and, and even after he was president, he kept doing new and different yeah. things. Well, Mozart's a perfect example of that. I mean, his sister said uh, in an obituary for him, he was always the eternal child. He would never, he would never grow up. Um, well, but that yeah, would, he, but, yeah, he would write like uh, he liked potty, like he liked potty language. He, he, yeah, like, yeah, that's right. Uh, potty, potty talk. He couldn't. He didn't make the distinction. He, he said a lot of stupid, silly things and drove his father cra crazy. But then at the same time, he's running these operas such as the Magic Flute. We were talking about magic there, and it's populated with all these imaginary characters. He, he's 35 years old when he wrote this. He has imaginary friends. He writes letters in which he refers to this imaginary friend, that's imaginary friend. And my, my daughter, uh, maybe you have children, also 
also, but we all know friends who have imagined children, have imaginary friends. That's a good thing to have. But Mozart, some of these minds, and Einstein was sort of sort of the same way too. They talked about one famous physicist talk, talks about the endless childlike mentality of Albert Einstein. Yeah, and it's and if you want to envision new things, this is probably a good way to do it. So I guess caveat to parents, don't clamp down on your kid. Let them, if, if you think they're being silly and uh, immature, uh, cut them a break, let them explore. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So one genius you, you explore in the book is Da Vinci. And you, you, you go into depth on him to explore this idea of geniuses. One of the habits they have is they maintain you know, an intense curiosity and a lust for learning their entire life. Can you kind of, I mean, what, how did that manifest itself in Da Vinci? Da Vinci was fearless. He was interested in everything. He would climb mountains. He would dive into swamps. He would cut up bodies to find out how they worked. And okay, big deal. We have people working in pathology these days and coroners that do biopsies, but they're operating under refrigeration and they're operating with air conditioning where the tissues doesn't degenerate. Can you imagine doing this back in the 15th century where the, it, this doesn't smell particularly good and you start cutting it up and this, this, this tissue is degenerating into muck. And by the way, the church thinks that this is illegal and may come along and arrest you for this. So you've got to do it night at night when you can't really uh, see very well. You've got to be really interested in what you're doing. Find about how the human body works, cutting up eyeballs or cutting out hearts and guts and all of this in the middle of the night under the most horrific conditions. Conditions. Is, was that courage or was that curiosity? Do they, do they go hand in hand? Could he even smell the stench? Maybe he was so curious, he was so driven, so passionate by what it was he was exploring that he didn't even notice. That, that's an interesting possibility. So they are curious. One other, I don't think I got to this, or maybe I did. Yes, I think, I guess, is the Isaac Newton, when he's working on his theory of light and color, he takes this thing called a bodkin, which is a big knitting needle, and he sticks it in his eye, and he starts <laughs> wiggling it around to see the effect of pressure on color perception. I'm not curious enough to want to undertake that particular task. I don't know about you, Brad. Do you want to try that at home this afternoon? No. I, I, I remember reading about that. I took a history of science class and we studied Newton. And yeah, when I read that, oh. I was like, I, I would never have done that. Oh yeah. That must have not been a really, really uh, enlightened instructor there because that's not a terribly well-known anecdote. Well, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing about Newton is, okay, and sort of this connected to this idea of curiosity and how it can maybe help your 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 main pursuit when you're trying to be a genius and like a lot of people don't know this about him but he was really into okay he's the father of physics basically what we have newtonian mm -hmm. physics mm -hmm. but while he was exploring physics he was also really into alchemy yeah 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 and 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 the occult now in fairness to newton alchemy back in the day was a 
about as close as they got to chemistry. So, but a lot of this wasn't uh, chemistry. A lot of it was just superstition and astro astrology and things such as that, that he was playing off of. He wanted to find a way of turning mercury into gold. So he was playing a little bit with that. He thought that this could be a real moneymaker, but he actually had more books on alchemy and astrology and sort of pseudoscience in his library that, than he had on physics. And for, I think, about a 20-year period, that's really what he was most interested in. He, he went over into the dark side, almost a kind of conspiracy theory with regard to, uh, I won't say fraud, bogus, fraudulent, in scientifically incorrect ideas, or at least things that in the course of time have proved to be scientifically incorrect. So I guess the genius doesn't get it right all the time. Isaac Newton got it wrong with regard to alchemy for about a 20-year period of his life. But I think the idea there is be curious. Like, don't don't be afraid to just. I think a lot of times people think they have to stick with one thing. I mean, you can have multiple interests. I mean, I wouldn't say go start studying alchemy so you can make the philosopher's stone, but it's okay to have multiple interests because that can somehow it might carry over. You might make connections you otherwise wouldn't have made if you had just stuck to one domain. That, yeah, that's the thing. That's the advantage of, of of being the fox, you know, thinking laterally in the story of the fox and the hedgehog, rather than going uh, a thousand miles deep, you go a thousand miles wide. Why do you do that? Because you see a lot of stuff. Yes, you got to pay your dues. Usually as a young person, you know, you got a good, what maybe if you want to be petroleum engineer, maybe you've got to study chemistry very heavily in school, and then maybe go to to a business school or something like that to see how the business of uh, petrochemical production works or how oil companies ship things around the world, whatever. Yeah, you got to learn some specifics, but actually over time, it probably would be useful to study other kinds of things, maybe ocean currents, maybe geography, maybe weather patterns, things things like this. Uh, and broad, gradually, you broaden out your point of view. How, how does this give you a, a leg up? Why is this a good idea? I think it's because it allows you to combine things. If you've seen a lot of stuff, you have a greater chance of combining disparate things into new ideas. And that's uh, and that's what Steve Jobs was uh, always trumpeting. He said, you know, that, uh, that's how smart people get where they get. They just see things because they have the capacity of combining things. But in order to see things, you got to be, uh, you know, combine things, you've got to be able to, one, see a lot of stuff and two, have a reasonably good memory so you don't forget stuff. If you see something and forget its importance or forget how it works, then that's not going to be much help. So you have to have, a, again, like intelligence, I suppose, you have to have slightly above average memory, but that combined with a, a wide lateral vision can be a very powerful tool. Yeah, speaking of Steve Jobs, like the thing, sort of the story that he did, how he was a fox and able to combine things to make Apple was uh, that he took that calligraphy class in college mm -hmm. or just, I don't even know if it was in college. I think it was just as an adult, he did it for fun. And that gave him the inspiration of, oh, we should make computers that are visually appealing, have a visually appealing interface when someone uses it. And that's how you got the the first Mac. Yeah, and he studied Zen, the kind of the philosophy of it, and how you think within in yourself, and how you you stay in your zone, and how it's possible to develop self confidence that way. Chinese calligraphy and Zen Buddhism are not the kinds of things that you immediately associate with a computer engineer, and it's these rather different combining mindsets from two rather different 
spheres of activity that allow the individual to have unusual and perhaps unique insights. All right, so you want to be a fox, have different interests, but also what geniuses are able to do, they were able to switch into hedgehog mode when they needed to. And so hedgehog is this idea where you just focus on one, one big thing. Geniuses often did that. Yeah, they did, but sometimes it didn't work out so well. Generally speaking, as I look at this, over time, geniuses start small and narrow or go down deep, and then they broaden bigger out into bigger, bigger projects, whether it's Shakespeare and the type of drama that he's writing, whether it's Mozart and the type of opera that he's he's generating, or Wagner and the type of opera he's generating, or George Lucas and the, these big, massive film projects that go on that en- encompass a number of volumes, the same thing with J.K. Rowling, a uh, number of, of volumes of that sort of thing. And it doesn't always end well for them. Uh, there's this expression that I've come to be paying attention to called sunk cost syndrome, where you think, and I suspect that Isaac Newton experienced sunk cost syndrome with regard to alchemy. You get going down a particular road of investigation great case here is Thomas Edison with direct current as opposed to Nikola Tesla's alternating current. Edison started with direct current and began wiring Manhattan with direct current and was expensive and he was building all these generators. It turned out not really to be necessary. With He had alternating current, but he was so deeply into the, both the science and into the expense of it that he couldn't cut his losses. And finally, as a result of that, it cost him control of what what was then what was Edison Electric, which became General Electric, and and the bankers eased Thomas Edison out of it because he'd bet on the wrong pony there. He'd bet on direct current and didn't know when to pull the plug. And for so many of us in life, myself included, that's the dilemma. You know, you want to be passionate, you want to be perseverant, you want to have grit, you want to stick it out to the end. But supposing you're wrong, this isn't going to work out. How do you know? When that moment arrives, how do you know when it's time to pull the ripcord on your great passion in life because it's just not going to work out and go on to other things? That's a that's a really difficult uh, a moment, really difficult thing to know. The only consolation is if you've studied a lot of things, you can then go go on to something else. Where is if, if, if this is your only pony in the race of life, then you may be in trouble. I think what I was getting at with that geniuses get into hedgehog mode, I mean, I mean, I was confusing just being able to concentrate for a long time with on a, on a particular task or uh, thing. Not, it doesn't necessarily mean you're concentrating only on a single domain, but it's just like the geniuses you highlight often able to just, they had like these immense power of concentration. They can just sit for hours if they needed to, to really think through a problem until they got to a solution. Like you highlight Da Vinci and you know, when he was working on The Last Supper, Sometimes you'd go in and just stare at the wall for four hours and not do anything. And then he'd make like just a few strokes and that was it for a day. That was, that was work. Yeah. Or, or he could be overworking on another project and suddenly just drop it and race across town, go up to that, go up to that, in this case, the last supper and paint a couple of strokes there. And go back to the other job. In other words, he's prob- he's multitasking, but he has the capacity to concentrate intensely, even though physically he may be somewhere else. It's a very interesting case, and but it's an interesting kind of dichotomy between relaxation and creativity, as opposed to concentration. 
and then getting the product out the door. So we want to have these ideas that are original, maybe by combining things, maybe by having a great night's sleep where we're dreaming and we get at this wonderful new idea. But how is this going to work out? Is this machine really going to work? Or what are the negatives here? Can you think of all the reasons? Can you concentrate on how this will work and why it might not work? And just sit there for four hours and work through these kinds of things. So they go hand in hand in a strange way. You, I think that these great minds have the capacity to toggle, and maybe that's the key word here, toggle back and forth, toggle back and forth between relaxation and imaginative insight and focus, execution. How will this work? Let me make this work. Let's get this work done. So at different stages of the, of the creation, uh, the process of creation, I suppose different sorts of expertises are needed. No, yes. Oftentimes geniuses kind of, they've, they figured out that they had to plan their, I mean, maybe they weren't even planning their day, but they figured out a rhythm to their their life where they have intense periods where they're just thinking, working, et cetera. And then they knew, well, if I'm going to get a solution to this, I got to put that aside, go do something else, and then I'll probably get an answer uh, just popping my head when I'm relaxing. Yeah, I think I think they do do that. And there's so many cases like that. That's why, you know, you have kids and one thing you should never say to a kid is grow up. Maybe another thing you should never say to a kid is stop daydreaming and get back to work. My mother used to say, yell that to me all the time in the kitchen when I'd be sitting there in the dining room doing my homework and clearly not doing my <laughs> my whole homework. So it is it is this kind of tension but between the two, and you have to have relaxation to give you the insights, and you have to be able to concentrate to execute the insights, and and in a number of different ways. It helps also to have a to have a habit, and 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 maybe one of the habits of genius is they have a habit, they have a schedule. Do you have a schedule for your, for your life, Brett? I, I do you have. Get your work done. Yeah, I do have a schedule. Yeah. And so why, why do you do that? Well, I mean, first I have, you know, with kids, you kind of have to have a schedule because they have to be at school <laughs> at a certain time. Uh, so that's helpful. And then they're going to be home at a certain time. And so you got to get the work done before they're home and, you know, starting distracting, you got to hang out with them. So, I mean, that's part of the reason, but also it just gives some rhythm. Like I know when I wake up, here's one, here's the sequence of things I'm going to do today. And so, so there you are, you, you woke up and you say to yourself, well, maybe I'll go exercise first today, or maybe I'll go out and garden and mow the lawn no, today. No, or I know maybe I'll go off and play golf today, or maybe I'll go work today. No, you probably are going to do the same thing at roughly the same time every day, because that's a, an efficient way of operating. You don't waste a lot of time considering your options. You just go there. And once you're in your study or wherever your workroom is, your studio or your lab, then what else are you going to do? At that at that point, you can't mow the lawn, <laughs> you can't play play golf. So you're sort of, and it. So having a habit makes you a heck of a lot more productive. No, and it's it's funny. I I don't think you have talked about this in your book, but it's interesting to read some of the strange things that geniuses have done to get work done. There's some writer, I forgot who it was, or maybe it was a musician, or I can't remember who it was, but like when he didn't want to work, he would put himself in his room and like strip himself naked and like give his clothes to his his servant, whatever, and said, "Don't give me my clothes until a certain amount of time." Because and he just wanted to be able to sit and and work. I think that's. I mean, it's interesting that you see that with a lot of geniuses. 
Yeah, that's interesting. If you can find that one, send yeah. me, send that my way. I'm gonna send. Um, yeah, I'll send that your way because I remember reading. Yeah, was, even if yeah, but even if you have to make it up, give <laughs> us a good example of creativity and creative imagination here. Make up a plausible story because it sounds like a really good plot. No, yeah, I know it's not. It's definitely I, I've I've read this somewhere. I know I've no, read this. No, somewhere. no, I, I I'd love to hear about it because that's one I've missed. Something we haven't talked about. That is, I think people have this idea of genius is that geniuses tend to have some sort of mental illness. Have you, as you study the lives of geniuses, did you find that connection? Yeah, I think that, I think, uh, yeah, let's call it mental discords. They're kind of sure. somewhat off kilter with the rest of the population. But but remember, geniuses are supposed to think outside the box. Geniuses are not ordinary people. They don't have a typical mindset. So if this manifests as some kind of seeming psychic disorder, then that's not entirely unexpected. And people, you know, I'm no expert in, in psychology, and I, I'm not a psychiatrist, no training in this whatsoever. But there are people, uh, Nancy Andresen at the University of Iowa, Kay Jamison at Johns Hopkins, that have written extensively and well about this particular topic. And what they see is a correlation between mental disorder and particularly artists. Top of the list are poets and writers, poets at the very top of sort of, we won't, let's, all right, sort of call them imbalanced, let's say imbalanced, a mental imbalance with poets and writers, musicians and painters, and on it goes. Once we get to the scientists, not so much. The idea of a the mad scientist may be something of a of a fiction of some semi disordered writer. <laughs> so, well, that was the um, Mary Frankenstein lady. Yeah, uh, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. Right. So, so, so she created she created the. That's absolutely right here. She created the archetype of the mad scientist, Doctor Frankenstein. But she she was a writer. She was not a scientist. So scientists have a, a much lower factor of psychic disorder compared to the other sorts of of artists. And there are lots of interesting questions about that, how it worked out. And so oftentimes it works out by way of an advantage. Deafness was an advantage in a strange way to Edison. And what did he invent? The phonograph so so he could hear things. Beethoven's music is so revolutionary in part because he was hearing the world differently. We mentioned uh, Isaac Newton. He probably was autistic, maybe Asperger's, we we don't really know. And obviously Asperger's has been backed out of the autism spectrum. But the point is that he could really, really concentrate in in an almost maniacal sort of way, but seemed totally clueless with regard to personal empathy. So there are characters and they have these special personal characteristics. And it's interesting to note how oftentimes they seem to intersect with a different creative vision of the world. What role trauma plays in this is very interesting to note, to think about kind of psychic trauma. Is having a happy childhood, Dylan Thomas said, the only thing worse than having an unhappy childhood is having a too happy childhood. In other words, you're not going to be a creative spirit if you had a very happy, unblemished, sort of well-centered childhood. I don't know that that's true, but it's a very interesting theory. And it's interesting to think about all of the 
individuals over the centuries who lost a parent at a very early age, whether it's Bach or um, Virginia Woolf or Picasso lost a sister, Tesla lost his older brother, all his children, um, Mozart was his mother at an early age, Beethoven may have mentioned Beethoven's mother, he had to go back and help raise the the younger siblings. So so that's interesting uh, and it'd be worth having somebody pursue that a bit more. Another thing with genius you explore in the book is, do geniuses have happy person? Like, is there is there a cost to being a genius? And a lot of these geniuses we've talked about, they did significant work that's impacted the lives of millions, billions of people. But if you look at their personal lives, oftentimes, I think with a few rare exceptions, it was a mess. Family life was in discord, or they it's not not happy. Yeah, it. They seem to be happy in their own world, but they bring discomfort and unhappiness around them. Generally speaking, that there are a few exceptions. I, I can't say that I would say that about Bill Gates. One hears about Elon Musk and his antics. One reads about Steve Jobs and his behavior. What a, I you know they would. Well, we can't say this on, on the air or anything like, like this, but he, he was called lots of lots of names. And my uh, the quickest way to make the point is to say that the, the biography of Steve Jobs is the only biography I've ever read where there's an index entry under the title "Despicable Behavior of," and so that's the kind of that's Walter Isaacson's book, uh, biography of Steve Jobs. So th- those are some of the kinds of uh, issues in play here. The problem is that they're so obsessive, they're so one-tracked in getting the job done. They may be peripheral thinkers, but they're not going to rest until they've changed the world, whatever their vision of the uh, of a changed world may be. That everybody. Else is kind of roadkill, collateral damage as they race forward to change the world. They are not empathetic characters with their colleagues, with their co workers, and most of all, they're not empathetic with the family members, the wives, the spouses, husbands, children uh, of the genius. So, what do you hope people walk away with thinking after they, they finish your book? You know, that, that's a good question. I think I'm, it surprised me what people walk away thinking. I hope they walk away thinking, hey, I read this book and I'm going to start le- leading my life in, in many different sorts of ways. I'm going to be not so worried about my kids' grades or SAT scores. I don't really care if they get into Harvard or Yale. They could go to the University of Oklahoma and still, it's nothing matter with the University of Oklahoma. I was actually born in Oklahoma, born in Lawton, Oklahoma, Fort Sill. So I think that there's a there are a lot of misconceptions here, and I hope I've allayed some of these misconceptions or exposed some of these uh, misconceptions and allow parents to allay some of the fears that they may have about failure and all of this sort of thing. I've paid, I hope they come away thinking, hey, I could lead my life very differently with regard to relaxation. And I could turn relaxation into a way that makes me very productive and very, very creative. I think what they say, ultimately, what I've been surprised by is the following. People read this book. I thought they might come to me first and say, you know, I didn't, I never thought of a genius quite like that, or I learned so much about, and I'm going to become, I think I can become a genius. What they say is, you know, I really like this book. 
because of the stories of all of the lives here. These are very, very interesting people. So in a strange way, this is like reading a hundred great novels, or I'm, I'm extracting <laughs> the high points of a number of maybe as many as a hundred human stories here relevant to exceptional human accomplishment. And maybe that's why I'm a humanist rather than a scientist. It's not so much the specifics that interest me, but the people that are the geniuses that interest me. Well, Craig, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? You can just go to Amazon, which is a creation of Jeff Bezos, a genius par excellence, changing the world for all of us every day. If we needed proof of how a genius changes things, we need only go to Amazon and buy Craig Wright, The Hidden Habits of Genius. It comes in hardcover. It comes in a Kindle edition, comes in audio format. And you can also go to your public library and, and get it there too. I was pleased to even walk in my little local bookstore the other day, and there it was sitting on the shelf. So I think it's available virtually everywhere. And thanks very much, Brett, for asking about that. Well, Craig Wright, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me again, Brett. Appreciate it. My guest today was Craig Wright. He's the author of the book, The Hidden Habits of Genius. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, craigwrightgeniusmusic.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is genius, where you can find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not only to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>